Hello there, and welcome to a special episode of Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And typically, this comes with the uh, the uh, the actual awards, but we just kept talking. talking, it, was talking, two, talking. It, was a, it was a very, very, very long episode, and yep. we recorded for a very, very, very long time. And I've learned that I can't drink whiskey while doing this podcast. <laughs> to be fair, and I know you keep saying that, to be fair, I actually think that it's the length of... we Whenever we go to four hours of recording... This always fucking happens. It just happens. Because we've been recording for four hours. And what we do is we talk about movies and we drink. Yeah. And I know I can't drive. I know I don't have to drive. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just like, I don't fucking care. Like, if we were at, you know, Side Street Cafe, I'd be like, okay, I have to sparse it. I have to sit on this beer for a while and get food Mm -hmm. and consume food. And I'm just sitting here going, like, don't need to fucking do that. I can go from here to there. Yeah, and it's and and I'm gonna be very lay, comfy. I'm gonna lay down in front of a TV and watch something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it's. But I actually think this is better. I think yeah. this is a little better because I'm clear-headed. I was really fucking sleepy. You know, uh, you're excited right now because Munchies is back open. Because Munchies is back open, which we will not miss. No, there's no way. <laughs> I mean, let's. Unless Munchies decides it's going to close early from its stated time. I mean, but I'm we'll done with If they close hour. early, it's because they sold out of stuff, right? Yeah. That's no reason. So, I mean, I just want them to stay open. As long as they don't go out of business no, tonight, good. I'll be fine. It's going to be hard for Munchies to go. I think Munchies makes a hand over fist. The oh. fact that, like, yesterday there was like, we're not going to open because we don't want to shovel speaks volumes to how well Munchies is probably doing as a business. Mm, I didn't open my house yesterday either because I didn't want to shovel, but... I had you the know. shovel. I had the shovel yesterday for the first time, like in a year. Yeah, I did mean I did some, but we got a magic plow to come yesterday. Is that like a magic wand? No, it's simple. Uh, you so, hold it against the clitoris to so, stimulate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the clitoris of my house um, is just the end of the driveway, which is actually not like it's not a bad analogy. Um, no, so the plow, you know, the town yeah, just the dumped. The driveway has like that little. They kind dumped, of hood. like. Two and a half feet of snow in front of our driveway, like the plows when they just plowed the street, and somebody came and pushed it all into our lawn, which is fine. Yeah. Push it all onto my lawn, and by lawn, and the, the driveway is the clitoris, the lawn. Labia. Okay, we're moving on. Um, so we're gonna do this the same way that we always do it. We're gonna snake draft it. I'm gonna start with my number ten, then Mario's gonna do his ten and nine, and we're gonna go up, 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 up. And from when we did this last week, I actually slightly shifted my top ten, so that's fun. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it is. Okay. Um, I saw a shit ton of movies last week. Did and you now add I just... to it? No, 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 no. So it's it's the same, same movies, ten movies. That's totally same ten fine. movies. One one. I, I switched the position of two. Totally fine. All right, let me get. No, no, no. There's there's no changes in that. In, in my new stuff. top ten. Actually, we're going to do all of my categories again. I saw the little things and it changed me. It changed the Golden Globe, the Hollywood Foreign Press yeah. uh, as well. Um, um, so I start this, right? No, I start it. You start it, yeah. Um, so I'm going to do my number ten. My number ten is a movie that I mentioned a few times on the last uh, podcast. You know what's great about this? I don't remember what your top ten was from last week because I was so drunk. Okay, well, it's also good because I'm pretty sure we skipped one of your movies last week. <laughs> um, so my number ten is uh, the personal history of David Copperfield, uh, directed by Armando Iannucci. Um, a movie I still have not seen. It's which is fair. It would be weird if you were just like I saw it. 
Now let's talk about it. Yeah. This would, this would be another problematic episode if we're just like, we're going to talk about all these movies now. Because that was another thing that happened last week. We actually stopped to have 10-minute conversations about movies that we didn't talk about over the course of the year. So, like, we stopped to have a 10-minute conversation about Dick Johnson is Dead. Oh. Which is, like, good because we didn't get a chance to talk about it, you know, over the course yeah. of the year. So that, that was our time. But that's why it, you know, we recorded for three and a half hours instead of the typical two. Um... Personal History of David Copperfield is an adaptation of, obviously, Charles Dickens' uh, David Copperfield. It is uh, f- super funny. Not in, like, not one of Armando Iannucci's, like, funniest kind of contrivances. Um, but it's really, it's got, like, this huge fucking heart. It is super well cast with uh, Hugh Laurie and Tilda Swinton and um, Peter uh, Capaldi. Dev Patel. Uh, Dev Patel plays David Copperfield. Um, there's this kind of... Uh, gimmickless, um, racially blind casting where he's just casting people to play parts regardless of, of whether or not like the kids, the parents, and the children's race lines up. Um, from a production design standpoint, oh, and that, that really, um, that doesn't do anything. It's just, they just cast the best people to play these roles. I think it's, it really benefits. The movie really benefits from that kind of looseness. And it also... It has this air of modernity kind of running through it, which makes it feel... Um, it doesn't feel like watching a period piece. It feels like you're watching kind of like a really elaborate skit on some kind of show. Um, production design is excellent. Um, the score in this really works. It's just a... T- There's a lot of things in this movie that are very typical, but because they're so well done and this movie is so... The, the heart of this movie is so big, it really... Uh, it, it's it's a good watch. It's it's um I'm not, I'm not it's not breaking any rules here. Even though I think maybe it does break a couple of rules. Um, it's not remaking, you know, this story. Um, it's not going to change the way that you like think about David Copperfield or Charles Dickens. Um, but in a year that had a lot of kind of when I had to choose between things that were maybe socially more relevant. Or, um, no, maybe just that. I actually opted for the thing I enjoyed the most mm. to fill to fill this spot. Is, I love, I mean, this is a good, ex- this is a, w- w- was a fun movie experience. This is a movie that I kind of wish I could have seen in, on the big screen. I think it would have been um, a fun movie to take a family to. Um, you know, it was a fun movie to watch with a family. Is it, is, it's like a, on TV. It's a PG or PG? Yeah, yeah, yeah. PG. Oh. Uh, maybe PG-13, but it's like one of those really... Light PG thirteens yeah. because I think they mention a kid gets beat, but you don't you don't see well, the just, kid get yeah, beat. Well, just loves his curses. Uh, well, that's, there's actually not a lot of swearing in it. There's more. They like mention suicide once. Um, there's a couple of like. Well, I'm just saying, thematically, like, from like in the loop, the thick of it, Death sure. of Stalin. Those movies are F-bomb Avenue Five. Galore. Yeah, where I think Josh Gad just says fuck. Like I still haven't seen of Avenue Five. It's it's not gonna blow your mind, but it has. Moments that hit. Was Capaldi in that? No, no. That's Hugh Laurie. Mm. But they're both in this. They want to cancel each other out. Uh, but yeah, so personal history of David Copperfield, number ten. My number ten is much less fun, extremely less fun, and it was my winner for best film editing because, as I said, like this, I don't know. I think I'm re- correlated this with Michael Clayton, and it still, I don't know, feels right. No, my, not Michael Clayton. What am I saying? I correlated with Spotlight. Mm, yeah, 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 we talked about that. Absolutely correct. Uh, it is collective. Um, it features one of the most harrowing scenes in 
film history uh, because because of the fact that it's real. Um, as I said, it's it's something that should be shown to anybody it, more so than the Christmas trees on fire. You know the, the way that that uh, they compose and edit the shot of the nightclub fire is mm-hmm. is just one of the most harrowing things, and the fact that that film so expertly after it makes the fallout from it uh, and makes the fallout from uh, the misdeeds of the government um, seems so much worse uh, and does so in a way that is always enthralling and always so upsetting um, mm. from a moral level is, is just an impressive feat. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many movies uh, that, that kind of do the same thing in terms of an expose on governmental or business mispractices, but to do so in a way that it's eminently exciting um, and uh, so emotionally enthralling is is a really rare thing for a documentary to do with such expertise and um, without kind of like falling on the backbone of, you know, a really impressive talking head. Um, it is done completely for this film's editing. Yeah. And, you know, it... I think this is uh, this is the first ever time I've given like an editing to a documentary, which is always like a big thing. I think, um, which is always a big thing. Maybe I gave it to Imposter back before we did this podcast. That might be a possibility. Mm. Um, but still, this this movie isn't trying to do any tricks with with the documentary, Mm-mm. but it's so expertly done. Yeah, I think the editing thing is right. And I remember when I watched this, I loved the when they chose to intercut the story of the woman who like survived the fire and was, you know, she did the pictures um, of herself. Um, like when they decided to bring her back, it always seemed very purposeful to remind us of like the real human cost of this. Mm-hmm. It's not just about chemicals and about companies and about company CEOs, you know, committing suicide or, you know, being murdered or whatever. It's not about these very, that's even Michael Clayton in of like to an extent as well, as much as it is spotlight, and I have a, a spotlight thought is that, uh, on that. Um, it kept being like, "Hey, look at like this is real. Like these are the scars of of what happens, yeah. of what has was wrought. This is the um, human face of it." And it, she survived, and look is what look at what has survived. I think the spotlight thing is really interesting because when I was watching, I had the same thought about spotlight. I wondered if these people had. I'm assuming a lot of these reporters had seen spotlight. Because there's a lot of stuff that they're doing, which seems like not maybe something that they would do in real life. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But it also really worked because it was yeah, something the to get like worked up over. Yeah, and it, you know, I guess maybe it's I don't know how you would and, quantify and even, these things about like what's worse. And even if like in the sense of you need an emotionality to the issue at hand, uh, that. In real life is eternalized. Well, so how about you know? In real life, like you just kind of like you talk about the basic stuff, but like you get really worked up about it personally, and you can't film that. To maybe like even if it is kind of like there's a slight staginess to it, like works because it's really putting that emotional weight to the forefront. But how about even this? How about even the idea that like you, if you're a reporter and you've seen Spotlight, how about it's one of those moments where you find yourself in a Spotlight situation? Hmm. You know what I mean? And so you're just kind of like, well, what do what do what do I do? Like, how does this look? How do I act? You know what I mean? It's you know I guess I'll act like Spotlight, but it's also like a true story. Yeah, it's it's or or not even that it's a true story because Spotlight was true. Also, it's happening in real time, and like We're you're reacting to things. Exactly, exactly. So um, yeah. I really like Collective. Mm. Um, my number nine 
uh, is the Eliza Hittman film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which was way higher up in this in the year. Like I said, it ended up being a surprisingly great year. Um, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always just is is such a minor film in the in the sense of it it's never tries to be extravagant. It tells the story. It allows Cindy Flanagan and Taylor Ryder to just act the shit out of this movie, and they do so extremely well. You know, Eliza Hittman's screenplay is incredible. Um, those scenes when you know autumn's still in pennsylvania and is kind of being told by it's not a conversion there but like um a religiously tinted pregnancy center yep um i don't know the actual names of them are so infuriating but they're not presented with any sort of um they're, they're not they're not necessarily um fake or, or, or that should be said there, there's no disingenuousness to it they, they feel really true to what that situation could be and um that that's that's the thing that this movie is is very lo-fi in its presentation it's it never tries to be dramatic Mm -hmm. it just presents the situation as it is and that situation in and of itself is dramatic Mm -hmm. you compare it to a much more terrible film and unpregnant (laughs) which is doing a similar topic and, and fails at it um and they're two different genres of film i think a comedy of this ilk could work um, Unpregnant just doesn't in almost any way, um, despite you know its leads attempts, like the performances yeah, yeah. in Unpregnant work. Um, I think it means well. Yeah, it means well. It just it just it just fails at that. Um, what was that Gene Carlo Esposito? Where very... does he fit into Never Ever Sometimes Always? <laughs> if only, um, like all that stuff. That, those those things work, but but to have a film that is t- tackling an issue that would be want for explicate uh i know what you mean you yeah, know, yeah. Not, not explications of the, uh, let's say exploiting the topic for dramatic purposes to do so in a way where only one scene you know the questionnaire scenes may be purposely framed in a very dramatic way it's earned um but to do so and and to succeed in that emotional state is is, is impre- incredibly impressive especially because of of what little it seems like she had to work with, mm. you know, in independent films are, you know, routinely like this, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it almost seems like she made a choice to kind of strip everything out of this movie, except for just these two people. Um, and then, and in the situation, um, and it's impressive is again, another one of those movies that was kind of like right there in this little tangle of stuff at the, the end of the year. And like, what am I going to, what am I going to pick here? And it kind of, it kind of just missed on all my lists. So, um, um, the idea of just missing on lists doesn't play to either of my next two movies. Uh, we'll move quickly over them because uh, we are going to talk about them later on your list. I'm assuming, well, one of them I'm I can I'm 100 sure, and the other one I'm 99 sure. My number nine is uh, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It missed. That was the change. <laughs> it just it just dropped uh, right off. My number eight is. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, directed by George C. Wolfe. Uh, you know, Mario, what, uh, are, what are your eight? What's your so eight? my number eight is, and like I said, I don't remember your list, Sound of Metal, uh, the Darius, um, Darius Martyr film. That that doesn't make your list, right? It was my number 11. Yeah. Um, from top to bottom, this this is just, just a... a, a we, we, talk, you know, we talked about this recently, but it's just an expertly crafted film. It's my best sound mixing. Uh, winner of the year, Risen Needs, right up there. Um, for actors, uh, I think 
you know, him and Sean Parks, the, the, the actors of this year. Uh, I think John Boyega was the only one not really in the fight for me. Did uh, you see, I mean, I know we didn't want to talk about it. Did you see that John Boyega nominated for Best Supporting Actor? Yeah, I don't know what the fuck's going on there. Maybe because, like, in the overall Small Axe series, he supported in one episode? Is that what it is? Do you I think? Guess, I, I, I just think they're like, we want to get John Boyega a nomination, so toss him in there. <sighs> um, no, uh, you know, this... this uh, the, the three main actors in this are, are incredible, um, but from a tightness of production standpoint, I think it's an incredibly great work. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the best sound design in film in recent memory. Um, everything is working for this movie. Um, once again, a, a really uh, emotionally purposeful film. Um, it maybe doesn't hit the same emotions I want it to necessarily hit at times. Yeah. But when it is hitting, it's hitting. And I love the kind of, I always kind of say like a slightly tongue-in-cheek casting of Matthew Ulmerich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, maybe. I, I, I've always considered that. I don't know. Just, when I saw that, I was like, is this a diving bell in the butterfly-like nod? It's possible. I hope so. That'd be cute. Why not? That'd be nice. Real nice. Do they have a really? I I always wonder with that, like you know, Matthew Almerick has a relationship to Darius Martyrs through something. Mm. I mean, I don't know what it would be, but like you know, they he just owes him one, so he'll come to. Maybe that's even his house, so he'll come to Belgium. Is it Belgium, right? Yeah, he'll, he'll, so. or yeah. France or wherever he filmed it. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's Belgium. We'll show up. You cook some stuff. We'll invite some people over. They'll actually drink. You'll actually play the piano. Olivia Cook will actually sing next to you, and we'll call it a day. No. You good with that? Good. <laughs> like, that's it. Uh, my number seven um, is the one small axe film on my list. Uh, at one point in time, I had three um, that got shuffled around here and there. Uh, my one is, is Mangrove, which we talk about later, right? If I remember right. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll talk about that in, in due time. Um, my number seven is uh, the Pedro Costa film Vitalina Varela. Talk a little bit about it with um, best uh, cinematography. Um, one of the sound mixing. Sound mixing, I believe. Um, this film is uh, a knockout movie. It is. I, I think I mentioned this. I don't remember if I mentioned it in, in this version or when I was talking about it when with cinematography um you know how you you kind of come across a filmmaker that you've never or an artist or a musician or whatever that you kind of have no experience with and then you watch or you listen to or you see something or you read something and you're like holy fucking shit Carolyn Rose was that for me last year yeah and I still haven't listened to that yet I'm sorry That's um I'm sure. Well, and this was what it's, it's so poppy and so like me that it might not even like respond. maybe well you never know um Pedro Costa was that for me, and this movie was the kind of impetus for that. Um, he has his own la- he's has his own film language, and when you're in it, it is both both discomforting and also uh, so immersive that you can't you can't just you can't get away from it. You can't you can't pull yourself out of it if you let yourself be pulled into it. It's not like a super easy film. Which I think is a very shithead thing to say and very like elitist, but it's in Portuguese. It is very still. Most of it happens at night, and if you're, um, you know, if you're turned off by your TV just kind of eating the black in your, I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where your TV like just can't handle blacks. 
like the blacks in this movie are so fucking deep that my TV was just like, I don't know. I mean, it's I still fuzzy watch in the middle. This, so I might watch this tomorrow. Um, and my new fifty-five yeah, inch four yeah, K. Yeah, it be good. Um, yeah, I'm still I'm bummed. I'm bummed about this because I watched Beanpole and it was between this and Beanpole, and I was like, I guess I should give Beanpole a chance. Yeah, Beanpole is not. Um, I, I I think maybe I get why people like it. Um, but it, I, if you've seen a bunch of, I don't know. I feel like it was its film language belonged to lots of other people. Um, to that point, my number six is um, Rada Blank's "The Forty Year Old Version," which is on Netflix. Um, it's in black and white. I wouldn't necessarily say that she creates her own film language, but I think because the movie takes the movie references the '90s a lot. It, it's not a, it doesn't take place in the 90s and it's not necessarily about nostalgia but it does reference the idea of where you make your like where the moment you become yourself and this movie is like I said it's in black and white it looks like the best Kevin Smith movie ever in a lot of ways in like the way that she uses the black and white it's very clerksy it's very old school it's very um, kind of uh, utilitarian, but it's beautiful. It almost kind of like, like some of these New York street shots only, almost remind me of some of the stuff that Steven Soderbergh did with High Flying Bird, where it's just, it's this, you know, she makes it look like this metropolis of just like little places, tiny mm. moments. Um, these people that are bigger, they're so much bigger in their real life in their own life than they'll ever be to the outside world and that's really all that fucking matters and for some way the black and white adds to this the 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 hip-hop that is explored here which is very i mean i don't i'm not a a bit i'm don't have like a huge hip-hop vocabulary the vernacular seems very wu-tangy to me um but that would all be relevant to like the way that this movie was framed it's but it's also super fucking fun it's really meaningful. Everyone's giving it like their 110%. It feels like that little movie that could in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, but it also is a movie that benefits. It's got a lot of real life stuff onto, you know, in it. Um, she references her own parents a lot, her own autobiography. This is mostly considered a docudrama, right? No, no, no it's a real, it's a, just a drama. Okay. Yeah. I it's it was... dra- comedy. I mean, it's comedy, maybe, mostly. But she I means she does a lot of um, Spike Lee stuff in here. Like, in terms of, like, showing clips of things. Mm. Like, you know, voiceovers over, like, a clip of something that actually happened. Or, like, a movie poster or a piece of art or something like that. It's great. Um, and it also is one of those movies that there's so much going on. It, uh, it's it got one of those... I don't know. I love those movies that kind of have um, the replay value. Not just from watching it again, but from reliving it again by, like, litigating it with a, with a, with a, another person. Like talking about what worked and what didn't work, and like how everything fit together, it it just kind of blossoms. The more time you spend with it, it seems to blossom as a as a piece of art. This is our first year where in your top ten, there's three. There's usually like one movie I haven't seen. It's the first year where like there's three movies. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like it's there's I think because there's two movies in my list you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot. It's an interesting year, and in the fact that like there's a lot of. Well, I'm going to be honest with you because you, it used to be that we would go watch movies. Yeah. And so we would watch, we'd have, purposefully go to see the same movie. 
But this year, it was just like, there's nothing to watch. There's nowhere to watch anything. So it's just, you're in your house, and you have a choice to make. And you're doing your own thing, kind of, yeah. Because and, and because there's like 15 things coming out every week, and some of most of them, those weeks are garbage, but then some weeks there's like seven things, and you're like, well, now what do I watch? How much do I want to spend on this? Because some of this is VOD, and not, you know, you don't have a lot of options for, for how you watch yeah, it. It's like, like tall and personal history were VOD, right? Yeah, I found out later that personal history uh, is on Disney Plus. Really? Yeah, I think so. That's what they just. I just was listening to a podcast. And they just said it was. Oh. So, I don't know. I'll they were making fun of the Golden Globes and the fact that personal history got a lot of nominations um, because of the musical comedy category. Um, I but I think that's that why. I think that's. It's, I think it's one of the reasons why like News of the World doesn't show up on either of our lists because did you either see News I, of the World? No. I'm not paying twenty dollars to rent News of the World for two days. I'm just not going to do it. I wouldn't have paid $20 to see it myself. I would have gone in the middle of the day and paid $7 on a Tuesday to see News of the World in the theaters. But because of COVID, I'm not going to do that. And that's why our lists are so weird this year, I think. I'm not seeing it on Disney. Is it? I could be wrong. But that's what they just said on that podcast. But it's rentable. It's like $3 or whatever. Yeah, I just... I, I, bring it around. I mean, no, if you can watch it on. Plus but that's seven six. So your my number six. Um, I at least know we both definitely watched. Uh, I, I, I'm. Uh, I know it doesn't show up on your list because you were kind of surprised at how far up it was on mine. It's a little fragment of a memory I have. Uh, it is Emerald uh, Fennel's Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Um, this being the the honorable mention of films I was looking forward to in 2020. Uh, it was starting to get that studio buzz, and I was like, you know what? This doesn't seem like my movie. I'm not a big Killing Eve guy. I still think Killing Eve's just all right. Mm-hmm. Um, this surprised me with how, like, just how well it works on every level. Carrie Mulligan didn't surprise me. Like, mm-hmm. I've always liked Carrie Mulligan, and Carrie Mulligan once again is just doing Carrie Mulligan stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that how well em- Emerald Fennel's kind of able to adapt a very s- serious situation into this kind of like bubblegum revenge film for most of its running time is extraordinary work mm-hmm. um you know recalibrating a movie with serious a uh, very serious subject to use you know a string quartet for toxic um or to repurpose a paris <sighs> hilton song mm. which is you know which is a great moment yeah it's it's kind of a bop it's kind of it's kind of a i forgot the term it's fun yeah, I forgot the, ter- the what the kids use for like good songs. What do the kids say? A banger? Like, no, it's not banger. It's something. It's their jam. Mm. Jam. Sure as shit is not jam. Um, but no, this this movie hits hits its emotional peaks when it needs to, and it does so in a way that has a really exhilarating sense of control. Um, some of the dumb criticisms of this movie have been like the vilifying of all men sort of thing. I'm like, go fuck yourself uh, with that. Because like, this has like two very, re- not redemptive characters, but two like strong men who are... Oh, and I, the thing I appreciate is like the two men who are not presented as complete pieces of shit are typically cast as villains. And that's kind of the meta of this film. This film has a real... In Clancy Brown and... Um, Bo Burnham. Yeah. <laughs> Clancy Brown and I don't know why I forgot his name oh, really quickly Alfred Bellini mm. um, and as you said during our review kind of like using Adam Brody and Max Greenfield and like Christopher Mintz Plass who are typically like these kind of unassuming guys um, in film and maybe even um, 
Chris Lowell. I don't know much mm. about Chris Lowell. He's in Glow. I, all I know about him is he's in Glow. Maybe he's also in the same vein, but to have Maybe, you know, know these kind of unassuming men then play kind of the vi- kind of play the villains in this. Yeah, you know, Bo Burnham as well um, plays into this kind of like meta perspective of of fact that like it's a movie telling a very serious subject, but does so with a very solid awareness of film in general. Mm. Um, it is it is it is that kind of like meta picture of the year that works in that way. The, the idea that a, a meta picture of the year actually is really interesting, and, and it's uh, when you just mentioned we were talking about bubblegum. I was like, one of the interesting things that I kind of wish I had picked up on when I originally saw this movie was the idea that by the end of the movie, it's gotten kind of out of control for her, for what Cassie, right? Yeah. Um, and it almost seems like she's in control, not just of the situation, but of the the movie itself, and she yeah, keeps it, trying to pull it back into its bubblegum territory. It has this like and it just can't anymore it has this I, I hate to use this example i don't know why i'm on the comic book train but it has this like harley quinn element almost mm. to it um in the sense of just being or even like um oh what the hell is that jane levy series suburba whatever you know what i want to talk about mm. this jane levy whatever um that kind of like fourth wall breaking aspect to it it has Without that the fourth wall breaking yeah and then the second the bedroom scene happens like everything kind of grounds back itself down to to reality and to like the the actual weight of, of the topic at hand yeah and it does and it earns it like it earns it with how solidly fennel's able to control this production and i think it's one of those things that like and i kind of talked about this when we originally did the podcast i thought the um i thought the script was a little um didn't, loose. a little loose yeah or it didn't it didn't hit in some of the ways that it, it, it should have hit or i wanted it to hit i think some of the interesting so there's been some weird shitty criticism of it i think there's been some interesting criticism of it from not from film reviewers necessarily but from like um culture reviewers or uh people who kind of uh exist in in, in the feminist seem to exist solely in like the feminist argument of, of everything and maybe not feminist argument, but of the, whatever the ramifications of the me too movement are, they exist to kind of critique things with it from that framework. And I think one of the interesting things that they've talked about is the fact that this movie doesn't, um, the victim is absent has no from the movie. Um, I think it almost, I think is too meta. Mm, it, you know what I mean, and where it's it's trying to be too, uh, it's pushing too hard. It's it's um, uh, some of those more bubblegum. It's too pushing too hard. Some of its more meta cultural aspects, and which takes away pulls away from the emotions of it. Um, and that wasn't anything that I saw in the original one. I you know I just we talked about that. There's no way to talk about it, but I think it's a it's definitely a movie that I really I liked a lot. And but I don't know if it's a, a movie you're supposed. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Is this a movie you're supposed to have fun with? Because it's fun for a while. I think I think until it's not fun anymore. I think and then it's have still fun. kind of fun. I think you're supposed to have fun with it. Then you're supposed to have like a level of of guilt, and then like when. You know, Max Greenfield is kind of just sitting there looking at Fudge the body you... burning. <laughs> but also, like, after he's, like, with the body burning and just kind of, like, kicking stuff, you're kind of just like, I don't know. There's this weird sort of, like, dark comedy. Well, you know point. where it comes from. You know that Carrie Mulligan's not saying yes to this movie if it's if the end is There's just meanness, Max yeah. Greenfield, like, shitting on her. And you know that Emerald Fennel's not making this movie if 
in re- if it's if the goal of the movie is to justify um, the male's perspective and actions, you know what I mean? So you come, or even to, or, or to throw your hands up and say there's no beating it, sort of thing. Right, right, right. Um, so you, I just, it's one of those things where like I trusted them, and I, I feel like my trust was was rewarded in a lot of you ways. You didn't, or I did trust okay. them, and because so I no, was you al- didn't feel like it was rewarded. I think it was because okay. I was allowed to find funny. I was Got allowed it. to find the ending funny. Yeah. I just wish that it was... I wish it would open itself up to more of those emotions rather than staying in its kind of yeah, there's um, a bit self-referential of, meta kind of commentary. There's a bit of safety with it, which is why it kind of like was my number three for the longest time and kind of fell off. Mm. Um, comparatively, yeah, my yeah. number five d- did not do that and, and just kind of like exposed the muscle and skeleton in a very Hunter Hunter-esque way. Um, <laughs> is Devin Sawa in this movie too? Yeah. Did you, did you, you never... No, no, I just read a review of it. Okay. <laughs> is that Devin Sawa? Yeah, it's Devin Sawa. Yeah. Nick, Nick Stahl is the villain of it. Oh, um, I love Nick Stahl. Yeah. Well, if you if you like Nick Stahl's face, you probably don't want to see Hunter Hunter. Thanks. Um, my number five, though, is, is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, this is... is kind of the perfect production i assume the perfect production of an august wilson play to, to say my familiarity with august wilson is 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 slight would be an understatement i'm not too familiar with his work outside of you know what denzel washman did with fences um but i, I just the minimalism in this production is serves its purpose to the nth degree but in the fact that george um wolf is able to find the cinema in those small moments is is fantastic. Um, Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman eat this movie the mm. fuck alive. Um, Viola Davis, you know, I, I I think I think it's it's comes to the point where probably she's probably my favorite actress. <laughs> it has to be the fact that every time she's in something and she's the center point, I say that she's the best of that year. She has to be at best. Like I think, I think it sounds like I'm resigning myself to it, but it's because she's so unassuming in that spot, uh-huh. you don't ever expect Viola Davis to just be this like ratchet, ranchet force. I said ratchet, but I mean ranchet force. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is because she's so she doesn't eat the film, but she does in the way that she knows what the movie, what a movie needs, and then she does it, and then. To have her do that here in such a way where she's still the background of it and to let, you know, Chadwick Boseman just kind of explode on the screen. Um, you know, he looks, like we said, he looks sick in this. Um, and, and, you know, Levy's a character that has to look torn up and eaten up by the world. Yeah. And he just bears his soul. Um, those two monologues in this film. Um, and then... Uh, was it Toledo's monologue? No, Toledo Cutler. Who's the other one's monologue? Why am I forgetting it right now? Toledo. Toledo's monologue. Yeah. Uh, those three monologues together are just forces of shit. Um, yeah. No, it's it's a it's an amazingly solid work, um, and it feels it it more so than fucking Hamilton. It feels like a theater piece a stage piece brought to the screen but it still feels like a stage piece yeah but it's it's it also i think george c wolf i don't think gives enough credit 
He was my. He was originally had my fifth spot in my director. So George he, C. Wolf was my was my sixth. He um. He manages to God make, damn you, Kleber. Yeah, he managed popped up to make the cinematic. You know what I mean? In a way that I don't think it it necessarily has any right to be. And I think one of the things we talked about a little bit about Hamilton with editing, and I think you were origin you were gonna. Did you end up putting Hamilton on your editing list? Um, I don't know. I think you had talked about it. I did, and I kind of, and I with you for a little bit. Um, but one of the things I, I uh, one of the problems I had with Hamilton, and I, I don't know if this is an apples to oranges thing, is that it was like, however it was edited, it was like, look at this, and now look at this, and now look at this, and now look at this, and look at all these cool things that are happening. The beauty I think of this is that it gives you access to a thing that on stage you're never going to get. You're never going to get this close to Chadwick Boseman on stage. You're never going to get this close to his face and to that smile and to his just his eyes just processing, you know, all these emotions that are kind of that he's laying out on the table. You're never going to get any you're never going to get that medium shot. So we talked a lot about the medium shot in in the turn your back on me god scene. Um like, if you're watching this in a theater, you're seeing his whole body, and he's going to carry that stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. But this movie thrusts you into the face of these emotions, and it's just a perfect use of these people. I mean, and to that point, too, with one of the things I love about Viola Davis's performance is that even though we've got her as a supporting actress here, and, like, you know, everything kind of supports that, even though she's not going to win or run on that, um, unless... Frances McDormand takes it away from her, which she shouldn't. Um, although we haven't seen it, so I guess I can't say that. Is that she's really kind of like the earth here? Like, she's the thing that, like... And I, I, and I love... I, and so I love the fact that she's, like... I love her makeup, and I love, like, the just the sweat hanging off of her. And everybody else is kind of, like, orbiting around her. And Levy is really trying to find his way into that gravitational... To have his own gravitational pull, you know what I mean? And he can't. Um... And I, I love I love how complex the script ends up being with like Moss kind of signing over the rights to you know her stuff and Levy kills a guy like his friend um, or a mentor a guy who kind of uh, who's thinking about race in in their in this country um, mirrors his in a lot of ways but he comes at it from a different perspective. Um, so I just think I love that this movie is a movie it's a small movie but it's a movie of all these differing perspectives and how those perspectives collide and what yeah. what the ramifications of that are and I think it's just think it's so fascinating that a, a, a movie that's like an adaptation of a stage play can kind of do all that stagey stuff and still be a fucking movie that's what is impressive to me about this and also What's impressive too is like where Ernest Dickerson and like Spike Lee with like the cinematography and the direction of Do the Right Thing mm-hmm. could make you feel heat. The fact that the makeup work here makes you feel heat. Oh yeah, is insane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like For those sure. two films. Like, and I just say this because like I saw them so closely together mm-hmm. in, during the dead of winter. Um, you feel hot during both those Fuck movies. Yeah, man. Absolutely. <laughs> That's why I won my makeup. It won your makeup too, right? I have my list right right here. Ah, Ah. Microphone. Production does not... I'm pretty sure we both agreed on this. Yep. Yeah. 
We, we definitely agreed on most of our winners this year. Whose turn is it mine? Yours. All right, so my number five is a movie that you mentioned. It is Steve McQueen's Mangrove. Um, you know, we talked about it at length on this podcast. It's actually a bonus episode. So it's it's Mangrove and the Queen's Gambit and Run, which is, which is a fun episode for us. Those things have nothing to do with each other. Um it's a this is like a master class kind of in filmmaking um it doesn't look like anything it doesn't feel like anything it is close to the bone um emotionally but it's a trial movie mm-hmm. and it puts all other trial movies that were released this year because to fucking shame just eat fucking mangroves shit all other trial movies okay all trial movie all s- Set trial movies that have the number seven in their title. Go fuck yourself. Some student film came out called like The Trial of My Seven Year Old Brother, and he's just oh, like crying. We right are now. gonna get lit up on Twitter. Um, I mean, this. I'm sure you tried, buddy. Yeah, you probably gave a better effort than yeah. Aaron Sorkin did. Yeah, for sure. Um, send us your movie. We'll review it. Um, yeah, there's. I mean, this movie is kind of this movie is kind of nuts, and I think it's one of those movies where. It goes from this kind of um, beautiful slice of life movie and kind of uh, depicting this culture that's, you know, long gone. Not long gone. It's definitely not long gone, obviously. The culture still exists. But, like, in the manner that it exists maybe in London is not the same or the manner that it's interpreted in London is not the same. And nor should it be with the way that, like, the police treated them. So it brings you into this culture, but then it turns into this... It turns into a, a courtroom movie, and it has all those typical trappings of a courtroom movie. You know what I mean? It just it just does them better. The I love this. I realize that I love this movie at the end, where Pressure Drop came in. Fucking Pressure Drop, man! It's nothing like a there's nothing like a needle drop on Pressure Drop. Um, and then uh, Sean Parks as Frank Critchlow just kind of looks around. And you just keep waiting for the next terrible thing to happen to him. And you find out, you know, later in the in the titles that many th- terrible things did continue to happen to him. But that he is the the idealism that was on his face and the disappointment. So it went from idealism to disappointment to this fucking, ha- this edge. Like, I'm not going to let myself be, like, ripped apart by mm. these motherfuckers anymore. I, I think... Lesser movies do not allow for that level of like subtle transformation in a person. Absolutely. But not just in a person, but in the culture surrounding that person. So remember, you had those people being like, you are Trinidad. You know what I mean? Like, you are that place that I go to to be reminded of what it was like to be home. And he carries that burden around with him, but that is no longer anybody's feeling about mangrove after that you know what i mean it's represent it represents something totally different and steve mcqueen fucking carries it like he he puts it all on the on the screen and just makes you understand it he just fucking beats you over the head with it and it's fucking great i love it it's thrilling uh in all the best ways yeah um you know steve mcqueen just did insane steve mcqueen has a collective you know is the best director of the year sure um, he got my best director. Yeah, and or win. You know, he was my number. I don't know where he was on my list, but like, 
if I put all those five movies together, clearly he wins just for sure. the workmanship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 this is the one where everything works together. And I, I think I think I think for me it works the most just because you have something directly in your face to compare it to. Because by incidentally, um, because each of these movies are so uniquely intimate, but so uniquely their own thing. Um, it's hard to compare them to anything, but to have Mangroves, that kind of one film uh, of of the small axe bunch that is in this kind of like weird cinematic year, something you can look at and compare it to some other films. Mm. And, and you know, the, the glaring example trial of Chicago 7, which just doesn't work um, because it, it goes for these emotional beats, but it doesn't know how to hit that tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and Steve McQueen is, is somebody who has perfected the tonality of things. Mm-hmm. And he's somebody who knows how to find his actors and get them to reach that tone. Because um, it probably starts with tone. Yeah. What's the tone I'm going for here? I can write and conceive of this film towards that tone. And, and, and not even in tone in the sense, I, meant, I, I mean tone in the sense of like a musicality. Sure, but um, also like part of that yeah. is like an atmosphere and oh, a yeah. language of the of of language. The language yeah. language is a great way of putting it. Um, it there's a consistent language being told throughout this movie and being told throughout those all all the small ox films. Um, and, and you look at Trial of Chicago Seven, and, and at times it feels like people are speaking different languages. It feels like a Tower of Babel in in film. Mm. Um, and to have such different actors, you know. Like Sam Spurrell, and who's who's doing like a performance that that's that's has a little more control to like the manicism of at times of like a Sean Parks, but to have those two work off each other so well, and to then to reach the thematic need of the film shows you how tight of a ship mm-hmm. Steve McQueen's running, and shows you how in tune everyone is with each other. Um, from just a pure workmanship and artisan level, mm-hmm. you know this movie just screams like I'm Steve McQueen and I'm better than you. He's the MJF of directors. <laughs> it's a wrestler. Michael J. Fox. No MJF. Maxwell Jacob Friedman. I don't know who that is. Uh, my number four. Just know he's better than you. Okay. He probably is. If he's a professional wrestler, he's definitely better than me. He's like 24. Like, um. He could do a backflip, I'm sure. It's probably all that matters. Yeah, I can, I can do a backflip and land on my neck. Well, then you can't do a backflip. I can land on my neck. You can kill yourself. Yeah. That's all you... That's all, you can kill yourself by jumping backwards off a thing. Um, my number four is uh, Spike Lee's Defy Bloods. Well, I'm I, number 11. I feel like it exists uh, on this list for a lot of the same reasons that Steve McQueen's does, and it's a, a level for, or that Mangrove doesn't, but it's a level higher in the sense that I love, I love the interpretive nature of it. I love the idea that it's an, an original film, it's original idea. I love the fact that it's like an action movie. Spike Lee like made an action movie, um, in that like you know in the final action set piece is literally like a set piece. Like it, it is a set. He is yeah. filming a set, and you know. There's, you can see where the squibs are, and you know if you watch it a bunch of times, you can everything is perfectly choreographed like an action movie. It's great, um, and it, which is not even to say that like some of like the old Vietnam stuff is action movie too, and it functions on a different level. There's just so much going on in this movie. This movie is so fun. This movie is so profound. This movie is so 
it hits so emotionally hard with everything. Like all of these characters represent this specific emotional, their specific emotional space, and each one as it kind of comes to fruition or just kind of ends because of something totally fucking stupid like a landmine. They just hit so hard. And then on top of that, you have the great Delroy Lindo performance, um, which, uh, you know, the Golden Globes clearly didn't appreciate because they're fucking idiots. Well, they go fuck themselves. Um, I mean, I just don't know. I don't remember the last time Spike Lee has been this fun. Like, in Black Klansman's fun, but it's fun differently. Mm-hmm. And And I love Spike Lee's films when he is having fun doing his thing, but doing it just different than everybody else. It's one of the reasons like, I don't respond to stuff like the 25th Hour, because I feel like there's a bunch of people that can make the 25th Hour, and I hate all those fucking well, characters. And the, thing, and the thing you mentioned, too, is the fact that like Spike Lee is so in tune with the climate of today that he makes a redemptive Trump supporter. And he's... And it's funny, and I, and I go by... I'm really I'm moving off of Armand White actually I think as a person just because he's I don't want to go there but he has very little to say about this movie he doesn't like it but it almost seems like reactionary like I don't like it like I, I have to dislike I it. have to dislike it because of all these reasons it's 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 actually it's, a, it's an interesting like they would be an interesting double feature of Five Bloods and Black Klansmen because I think they kind of speak to roughly some of the same stuff about this kind of opportunity, the opportunities that you're allowed to have versus the opportunities that you have to take for yourself. Yeah. I- and this is uh, modern, but also speaks to just like a, a, a filmmaking style that doesn't really well, exist anymore. What I really appreciate about this, and it's definitely a movie where like I fought desperately to get in my top 10 but just kept slipping out yeah, but I could yeah, see I like in that. five years five ten years it being if we did came back to the pivotal film list it being there is the fact that it feels so reflective mm-hmm. like of, of Spike Lee and his own pred- like Spike Lee has, has from the beginning of, of his filmmaking career early on in his filmmaking career um, been so reflective of just like individual prejudices and, and understanding those and, and being in touch with those and not necessarily saying like they're the same thing because clearly they're not because it depends on you know position of power and whatnot. But this feels reflective in that way in the fact that he's trying to have some sort of empathy with somebody who he stands so vehemently in opposition to. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a real self-awareness to this movie. And I think that's where, like, this is maybe is better than Black Klansman, is the fact that, like, Black Klansman's kind of, like, what... He made a movie that kind of felt like... He made a movie that people wanted to see from him, whereas The Five Bloods is kind of more in tune of that's what he sees yeah, yeah. the world has. I had Black Klansman on my list in 2018 when it came out. Um, I thought it was... I liked it a lot. It's good. I'm not, I'm not begrudging Black Clansman I think at all. The, I, just, I just it doesn't feel as earnest. I think it's right, and I think one of the things is that I don't know if you noticed this, but some of the feelings that Paul had about what Trump represented to him are a lot of the things that you hear now. Kind of a like a lot of African American males, or it's being written about that African American males are kind of feeling that way, mm. and I definitely a lot of you know in Florida, there's just fucking volumes already written of newspaper articles in the New York Times alone about like 
like the like the, the Cuban, Cuban vote, yeah. about Cuban Americans and like how they feel perceive their place in society and how Trump speaks to an ownership of or or an attempt at ownership of their life rather than kind of just giving it over to well, like a mass to, a masculinity sort of thing. a masculinity for sure but i i think it's i think we're going to find agency an agency is perfect i feel that to me so this is where timmy failure and defy bloods are kind of the same because they're both about <laughs> tom mccarthy just they're punched both the about wall in excitement yeah, he's just like yes i did it i did it i did it um and i, I think that's why the five bloods is so interesting is it perfect i don't it's definitely not perfect but it's f- it's way more fucking would you, interesting would you than want lots a of other stuff. Movie to be like perfect. No, yeah. fuck no, man. But this this movie is so it feels good and it's a good time and it asks heavy fucking questions and does it do everything right? No, but it's always interesting. Yeah, always fucking interesting. And I mean, ultimately, that's kind of what I want is just interesting stuff. No, I absolutely. Um, and and yeah, it's it's one of those ones that's just like. I, I've watched it twice. The second time I watched it, I got a little stronger of feeling. Like I said, when I watched this the first time, I was in a bad spot, mm-hmm. and I can't watch it right now. <laughs> um, I think when I'm in a better mood, like I'm in a better mood politically, and when I'm like going to be in a better mood personally and whatnot, I think this I'll respond to it a lot more. And I think that's why this movie is good. And also, it works on both. The those one levels. thing that, that that is a feeling of this is like this should never have been a fucking. I mean, I know Netflix gave him the money and nobody else would have, but like, it does not look good on a small screen. I mean, There's just, some color stuff that just does not look good. But even imagine the Del Rey Lindo's speech in a theater. It's like with any amount of people in it, intimidating. It's gonna wreck you. Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna leave that theater feeling. Like the same as you went when you went in. I mean, you still don't feel that way on the smallest. No, the no, no. But screen. you, I mean, it, the it, smaller screen. The small. <laughs> I have a fifty-five inch TV now, ladies. ladies. Um, yeah. But yeah. So the five bloods. My number four. This is my my switch up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so my number four is. Uh, I think this is the first time I've ever done it. Is my second documentary. <gasps> uh, it is my best documentary winner of the year. Uh, it was a close race between this and Collective, but my number four is City Hall. Um, to have a film that is uncompromisingly <laughs> four and a half or so hours long and be about local government and not dramatize local government, just show you local government and its operations mm-hmm. and its minutia and its technicalities and its day-to-dayness, but to do so in a way that Frederick Wiseman's so, you know, I'm not, I haven't seen anything by Frederick Wiseman before. I always really? meant to see um, Ex Plublis or whatever, his New York, yeah, his yeah, New York yeah. Library one. Yeah. I never saw that. I never saw um, but Indiana. Monrovia, Indiana was the last one. Yeah. I think, I thought he did, wasn't the New York one, New York Public Library one after Monrovia, that? Indiana was 18. And this oh, was... maybe. Anyhow, um, I, I'd never had seen any of his movies. And, and you know, there's there's really nothing. You know that there's a lot of footage there. Mm-hmm. You know there's a shit ton of footage. Um, and you know it got, it got reduced down to something that sparses out whatever. And I wouldn't necessarily call it a great watch for anybody. <laughs> I, I think I think like very much personally I think in terms of a theatrical documentary collective 
destroys this. But this shows up here because it speaks to me. Mm-hmm. I'm a policy guy. You do like policy, yeah. Who is inherently adores um, local and regional government. Uh, you know, I'm, which everybody I'm Les- should know. I'm a, I'm a Leslie Nope of uh, humanified. Ex Libris was 2017. Monrovia was 18. This was 20. Oh, okay. Um, this just is a movie that speaks to me. I found it enthralling for the entire runtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, when I was trying to like go crazy and watch multiple movies at once, once I had this and Boys State on at the same time, and I eventually just turned off Boys State to watch it later because Boys State sucks, fucking ass. As we talked about, sure does, um, sure does, Mario. Because you know, Boys State's trying to do something that's not real. This it's this isn't this isn't bullshit. doing it. This this is just like this is how it is. Um, it, it's lucky in the fact that Marty Walsh is such a charismatic force who actually seems like he gives a shit mm-hmm. um, in a city that has been betrayed as not giving a shit really about much of anything. Um, Boston's hard. Yeah, Boston's a hard city. Yeah, yeah. Like, even that Boston Strong stuff, is it's hard to buy at times. Well, because I think it just comes from a weird place and they've had so many weird... Uh, their history is not There's a not weird, like, great. aggressiveness to it. Yeah. Um... But it, it kind of shows you in the sense, it, it's a real, what, cinema verite? Is that, is that, would that be the right word? I don't think cinema verite is No, right because thing. it's real. Um, because it's, it's real, documentary, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's docu- but it's, it's a real, there's, there's no attempt to add a facade to it or to reduce it. It mm-hmm. just kind of rolls how it is. Um, and I think for anybody who feels the need to write a Facebook post about local government should be required to watch this before they do it. Because uh, I think I think it shows the the nuances and the complexities in a way that's still pretty tight. I mean, it's only... I mean, I know it's crazy to say it's only a four and a half hour long movie. Mm-hmm. But... And I think that's what's impressive about it is that it covers the gamut of what a local government does. Um, answering sort of like extraneous inquiries um, and things that are necessarily tied into the work you do... Uh, you know, it, it doesn't cover that, but it covers the fact that there's there's so many balls you have to be juggling at once, and to do so um, successfully is is impressive. And I think this film clearly shows that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I it, the next movie I'm going to talk about is one I want you to watch. This one I I don't know because I don't know how much it would speak. I think well, it would because as you're a government person yeah, too. Yeah. I think um, it would too. I I think I would prefer it if it was. I would love. I, I and I'm assuming it's his like artistic philosophy is that he wouldn't sell this that's why you mentioned it's on pbs mm. and that it's not on like like a netflix or something oh well, you know I, what I mean and I broken up into five different i mean i, I subscribe to pbs no no but so like I, can, I give you my my password no I'm, I'm more speaking like i'm surprised that they didn't break this up into hour-long episodes oh right. you know what i mean like and you can watch them as a thing i think it'd be more palatable it's, as it's that easy. rather it's than like easy you know, to do though five hours which is great too it's easy to do yeah. like i watch this over two sessions mm-hmm. and i could easily you can it cuts so quickly like there's you obviously won't have a narrative break but you'll just kind of like there's points where we'll just sure. be like, we're talking about the um, Elder Council and Elder Services. And now back to like the Boston Red Sox parade. But, but you like, can like stop there. But I wanted to stab myself in the face every ten minutes when I was watching The Irishman. Because it just fucking sucks. And it's not, it's not giving anything back to you for all the time and effort you are putting into watching it. Mm. I can see something like from a master documentarian like... 
City Hall really rewarding that time. It's just finding that time it's, to kind of give it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Give um, to it. And but I think I think you don't you don't have to watch it all in one sitting. You could watch this in thirty minute increments, and mm-hmm. you'll you know you're not gonna. You're gonna understand the narrative going through. It's, right. it's not like there's a narrative through line. Well, it's, um, like it's happening somewhere else too. I think if there, if collective was five hours long, that might have even been more. That might have been more difficult because it's not anything that we understand. We don't live in Boston, but I've been to Boston a million times. I understand the hit, like what Boston. And, I don't understand like the minutia of what Boston is going through, but I understand what Boston represents like culturally Boston, to our country. Even though Boston is. What eight times bigger in New Haven? Boston city government and New Haven city government are basically the same thing. And if there are towns that kind of function just on a similar level. right now. Listen to that. I was like, did it? We are giving everybody all their boners tonight. Um, my number three though uh, is is a movie that you you know we've talked about a lot tonight. It was the one you you stood against out of a a pride thing. <laughs> I don't, I don't necessarily... It's a really it's, it's, complicated... It's, it's, I will it's, not be hyped to. Yeah, no, and it, it's fair. I think I think this movie... I would agree, and I think this movie... Because this movie is like kind I'm, of a victim of that early... Um, the early pandemic hype. After there we, wasn't enough good shit to watch. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And this was really good and shit. And after we do this, I will gladly watch this. No. I just will not... Like I said, I, I will not succumb to, like, you are obligated to like this. No, I'm not obligated to fucking like anything. I don't. I think there's a good chance you'll hate it. It's it's a weird western, and I don't know your your taste on weird westerns. I don't know. In general. I'm, I'm not uninterested in it. I just hate when people tell me what to like. No, and this this is just. Uh, this is something I I would never say anybody should like. It just it hits the Mario tones. Uh, I love a good solid um, B movie mm. and a B movie that's does. So it, this, this, this just feels, um, feels good for me. Mm. It's, it's a, it's a good, like modern Sam Peckinpah movie for me. And that's a, that's Baccarat. Um, yeah. I, I went into this with, with no expectations because well, there you go. Of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I went into it going like I've been hyped up for it a lot. Um, and so that's why I'm trying to lower your expectations. I just, I love it. Oh, I don't mind. I love it for me things. Um, so I went into it going like this is going to be kind of fucking taking itself too seriously. It's going to, because everyone that kind of like reviewed it was like, oh, it's kind of like sci-fi-y and whatnot. But like it's a real serious social piece. And it has those elements, but it does so while never giving up fun. Mm-hmm. This movie is always reliant on being fun. Mm-hmm. Um, in such when it stops being fun and tries to be dramatic, it really works. Mm-hmm. As I talked about in our best moments of the moments, year, yeah. that farm table scene comes after an hour of kind of like weird stuff going on and kind of like a sci-fi build and some like mild drama. Um, and then kind of like this bloody like shoot like not shootout but this bloody kind of like execution but it's kind of still done in an action way and then that farm table scene happens and that's where like the real social meat of the story like falls into place mm-hmm. and you're like oh you feel it like mm-hmm. there's a real heaviness to it because it, it earns it and then it kind of falls back into its kind of like pulpy trappings yeah um trappings usually used in a negative connotation but i think it works here because this movie is really first and foremost in that kind of like weird 
late night vibe. It stays in that like kind of Joe Bob Briggs vibe, um, but just really does so in a way that is so expertly crafted. Uh, it is, um, it, it it has it shares a lot of the kind of same sentiments of an S. Craig Zoller film. Mm. If S. Craig Zoller wasn't. I could only assume a neoconservative, which he <laughs> most likely is, was actually like on the right side. I'm actually of the... not 100% sure S. Craig Zoller is anything. I think S. Craig Zoller is just like, what do I need to be for my movies, sort of thing. I feel like if he knew he would be making more movies. Yeah. Because the neoconservatives don't give a shit how good it is. Because yeah. Kirk Cameron still gets to make lots of movies. Well, I'm at neoconservative. I guess I'm at neoconservative in like the. like, um. early 2000s way. Like the post Newt Gingrich, um, what the hell, uh, Bill Frist sort of way. Oh, Bill Frist, like yeah, a neo Bill Frist, like a neo here. Bill Frist conservative. Woo. Like that's why I think S. Craig Zoller is. It's like a Bill Frist. It's like funny if you're still Bill. a smart guy, but like you know, just on but the wrong Bill side, Frist. just on the wrong side of things. Yeah, yeah, like still knows how to like stop a gunshot, like stop a was it ninety seven capital shooter wounds and save his life and mm-hmm. resuscitate him. But still a piece of shit. Mm. You know, like, that's why I see S. Craig Zell. That's why I'm saying that sort of new okay. Um Good job, Bill Frist. You made it. <laughs> How many people are talking about Bill Frist in 2020? Zero. Do you have anything to say about Harry Reid also? You probably would have lots to say I about lots Harry Reid. Um, a lot of this is, a lot of the modern political climate is his fault. Um, no, but this this movie's just, it's so much fun to watch. Um, I look forward to getting into it. Maybe we can talk about it again, like after yeah, I watch it. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to say. It's just it's so well directed. It's so fun. It's such it's such a me thing. You know it's, what? It's so like gory. We did this last. <laughs> we did this last year when they present heads in front of a church, which is what you I mean. All you really need. No, we did this last year with an elephant sitting still. Where, like, in the middle of February, you were just like, I'll f- finally watch this. Well, there was no movies to watch. Mo- right. And so, well, there was Sonic. The he- so that episode, I think, was Sonic the Hedgehog. Me talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> yeah, like Elephant like, sitting still. And then, like, we whatever we talked about. still haven't seen Sonic. Um, which is fine. It's- I'll sketch it eventually. Once, once it's available to me to watch. Like, the second I see, like... Scrolling through some streaming service, I see Sonic the Hedgehog. I'll press play. You watch it. Yeah. It's honestly not the worst oh, movie I, ever. I think it's. Good. I think it'll be fun. It's just. It is fun, and um, you know, whatever. I think it knows what it is. I think we'll have to do this with Baccarat too. We'll have to do the same kind of thing where, like, I watch it and we talk about it for real, instead of just kind of like what it represents on our list and yeah. like from a year and all this other well, stuff. We can kind of go molecular on on moments and and it's a good cool i things. think that's a good back and forth thing too mm. uh because there's like i loved udo kier in this and i think it probably deserves a lot of pushback does udo kier have the weirdest 2020 like <laughs> filmography between this i don't know what else he did i'm sure udo kier has done 10 movies this oh, year. Sure. between this and the painted bird all right yeah no kidding um no, but I, I feel as though my love of Udo Kier deserves pushback, like the fact that I nominated him. <laughs> and I'm interested to see about... I, I have a feeling you'll be like, I, I, I see it. But here's the thing about Udo Kier is that when you see that Udo Kier is in the movie, you're like, it's pretty good. Yeah, okay. Pretty good. He got, they got somebody. I mean, I'm still in that weird phase of where like Udo Kier is like, has a bit of a, a stop sign hesitancy for me because of his Uwe Boll experiences. But he's also... What the fuck happened to Uwe Boll? He's also Udo Kier. 
So when you he's in something, you know that it's going to be something. No. You know what I mean? It's not going to be just like a regular movie. Even though Painted Bird fucking sucks ass, not a regular movie. You, you, and it Udo sucks Kier so much ass. It be you not forgot a regular movie. how much it sucked ass. <laughs> right, I did. I forgot. I totally forgot that movie existed. Which is, I wish... I wish I could. I didn't think, but I think that was the. I think the power of come and see is that even that week, when we saw those two, I watched the Painted Bird first, and then I watched Come and See again, and I was like, "Holy fucking shit!" I watched Come and See and then Painted Bird, so that's probably what made so it. So Painted Bird was probably even Painted worse Bird, for you. Well, yeah, no, it's fair. Yeah, because it felt mean, like it just felt meaner. Well, that was a tough. I mean, and we're off topic now, so this is perfect for our podcast. That was like in the great. This is a separate episode. This is the meat of the pandemic that we're talking about here. So remember, we just like we'd watched that early Tarkovsky movie, that war movie. Um, Oh right, Uh, why am I forgetting its name right now? And even some of the stuff from um, what's it called? Uh, Andre. Even some of the stuff from Andre Rublev, like. Marhul, that's his, that's his name, right? Ivan's childhood. Marhul, Ivan's childhood, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marhul is the guy that directed Painted Bird. Yeah. Clearly. The comedic director. Just did fucking thick. <laughs> look, at, look at this kid and shit. He, Funny, right? He did thick lines of, of Tarkovsky movies before he made that movie. Because he's just referencing him all the time. And, yeah. But he's got no fucking soul. So yeah. it's just this empty brutality that means fucking nothing. I mean, Ivan's childhood's brutal. I love Ivan's childhood. I mean, I feel like such a, a Reddit user, which I am, like being like, Tarkovsky's great. Blah, 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 blah. Tarkovsky is great, though. I, To be fair, I don't necessarily um, love Stalker. I, it's, I think... So... I guess let's talk about it. I think we'll do quick. I think that Stalker is probably one of the great films of in the history of cinema. I think Andre Rublev is. I liked it better. I like Andre Rublev better. Um, I think the I think I Mirror like, is also like a, a well, fucking you, intense experience. You know the one I love. I fucking. Ad- uh, you, uh, you, uh, do you remember the one I love? It's, I'm assuming it's between all of those. No, Solaris. So ah, Solaris. Solaris. Mario's tongue literally just fell out onto his computer. <laughs> yeah. No, I fucking love Solaris. Yeah, Solaris. I, what, what if we did a, What if here? we went back and did another Solaris. Tarkovsky? Do another Tarkovsky episode. Um, <laughs> just an episode of me trying to pronounce Solaris. But I think it's just yeah. It's an a, it's an ASMR podcast. <laughs> Solaris. <laughs> no, I love that movie. Solaris. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. But that's the beauty of Tarkovsky is that there's all these. He does everything. Everything he tries to do, he does very Tarkovskyan. So it's always going to be interesting, and it's always going to be something to think about, and it's always going to be worth the effort that he's going to ask you to put into it. The Painted Bird is fucking garbage. I'm assuming Baccarat is not fucking garbage. Another movie that's not garbage is my number three, and we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about it. It is Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock. In the same way that I think that Tarkovsky kind of... Is is so unique that he belongs only to himself. If you are referencing him, you are very obviously referencing him. You are not a mix of, of other filmmakers. You are just stealing from Tarkovsky. I think a lot of people are going to talk about Lovers Rock in that way in the future. Lovers Rock is this this unique, perfect thing that has no real definition. 
has long digressive uh, sequences of of just music playing and even like the same song like a couple of times in a row and the intensity just gets builds and then it ebbs and then it just fucking crescendos in a couple of moments and even when that intensity is crescendoing in like the silly games uh moment that i referenced uh when we did our moments um it's crescendoing the emotions are crescendoing but it's from a filmmaking perspective, it's just a bunch of people stamping around singing a song a cappella. But it doesn't feel like that. It is a wholly unique experience. It is an experience and it's just kinetic. Only Steve McQueen could make it. And you don't even realize that it's only Steve McQueen Steve McQueen could make it until you're watching it and you're like, Oh my god, he's doing all his Steve McQueen things, but he's putting them to such a, like a different use. Yeah. I'm I'm still confused about this movie. Um, artistically, I appreciate it. And from a technical standpoint, I appreciate it. I just did not at all respond to it from an emotional level. And mm. I'm not sure why. Because like, I'm becoming a music guy now, finally. I just... From, I don't. I try not to connect myself to things very as much as I can. And I definitely didn't when I was I watching. I do. I do not try to not. Do that. <laughs> I definitely didn't. And I, I definitely. I do that sometimes, but I definitely. I didn't do it when I was watching Lovers Rock. When I was watching Lovers Rock, I didn't think to myself like, I've spent my whole life in clubs and listening to live music. This is the most. This replicates that experience the best that I've ever encountered. Where you, which which is. An up feeling you do have? Sure, yeah, which is you are never going to experience this ever again. Whatever is happen, happening in this house on this night at this minute is the only time this is ever going to fucking happen. And have being on stage, um, like for some of those things, and like being in you know the audience for some for moments like that um it's a it's a powerful moment and i think it's kind of at the heart of i think it's one of the foundational aspects of of lovers rock is that these things happen all the time and i think the context for why they happen and how they happen um are probably the same almost every time you know what i mean there's this there's this latent racism that's inherent to th- not in the building but the area you know what i mean when like that uh, the the main character, uh, you know, so much as she is, kind of leaves the party, and she's just met on the street by these five white kind of tufts that have a, a couple of things to say to her, and then the bouncer kind of, you know, uh, intimidates them away from her. Um, it's not expressed in in any words that matter, but it's just inherent to the experience of these people that like, they have to have these parties in these houses because they're not allowed to go into the other clubs and they become wholly unique experiences. Um, so much so that it's, you have, you almost have to get everything you can get out of it at that moment. Mm-hmm. Cause you may never get another chance to do it. And I think it's really interesting. Like you don't even really understand that until like the very end of the movie, where there's this girl and this guy who found find each other, and he takes her to his his garage. But then he's not the boss of the garage, so he's like, "Oh, you can't," you know. The boss is like, "You can't," you know, bring girls into here. Um, and then she goes home, and she's this very Chris. She's from this very Christian family. So you just think about these two people, and like they're supposed to call each other 
But you think about the lives these two people are leading, like this is just one tiny, tiny aspect of their life. They may never get another chance to do any of this. This may be it. And maybe they'll go to the next one, whenever the next one is. We don't get it, like, they're not like there's a scheduling event. Um, but as far as we know, like, this is it. They had this night. This is all they get. And they have to take it with them forever. And I think that's where... If you've been in a if you've been in a situation where like a, a, a specifically a musical one, but I think a film one too, where like something like the silly games moment happened, you might go to other you know houses and hear silly games and uh, all that other stuff, but this may not ever feel the same, and you're going to carry that with you in whatever version your life ends up uh, or wherever your life ends up going. Uh, you're going to carry uh, an aspect of that with you forever. And I think there's a lot of that at play here. And I think yeah. it's... it's it, it, to take small acts in its in its uh, entirety, I think it's really interesting to put this as, you know, at the, as the second film. You know what I mean? Because it goes big, and then it goes tiny. And then it goes incrementally kind of bigger. While still staying small, you know what I mean? I wouldn't say education is incrementally bigger. But from it's bigger because it's about Weedle or Red, White, and Blue. But they're bigger because they're about they are ultimately the implications, about, I guess. Exactly, because okay, they're about right. bigger things. This is just about that night. Yeah, this is just that, about that, that one sense. thing. Like he could stay a scientist in Red, White, and Blue. Sure, he could. Do uh, he could. Alex Weedle, he could have a life. Education is like a destiny defined. I guess. I, well, guess, that, we, I guess that makes sense from that sort yeah, of. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about those movies. Is that like those movies stop right when they're about to make a decision about what to do next yeah. and how to make this this small thing that they're doing much much bigger. And Lovers Rock even stands outside of that. And yeah, Mangroves, that, I guess, the only one where it kind of like doesn't stop. It go right. I mean, it doesn't. It goes huge, and then it's just like, oh yeah, this lasts for another ten years yeah. or whatever it is. But Lovers Rock just stays tiny. Stays in. It just stays small. Sixteen hours. Yes, just fan. It's in. It. That's what's so unique about it. No, I appreciate it. I just, I just didn't, I didn't get close to it. Yeah. Maybe you will. One day. I'm 80 years old and alone. <laughs> Just sitting on your couch in front of your huge TV singing silly working, games yourself. When I'm working in a school. Looking at a hanger. Alright, Mario. What's your... You're at number... No, you're at num- you're at number two. I thought I... You're number two. No, you did your number three. I did four and three. No, wait. Oh, it's my... No, oh. I, I did my four, three. You did your three. So my number two is... Uh, Miranda July's Kajillionaire. It's actually on here for two reasons, I think, from like a just trying to make a list perspective. It's on here because of Lover's Rock, and that I think it's wholly unique. It is not necessarily wholly unique to Miranda July, because it's very much a Miranda July movie, but it feels wholly unique to this year. And then the personal history of David Copperfield, I think if you put those together, you get a number two movie. Excuse me. I don't know why I'm like so burpy and out of breath. This movie is so fun. This movie is so much fucking fun. But I love the fact that it goes even... It goes into the heaviest places of a person's um, upbringing. It, the idea that this... Miranda July has made a movie, a, a super quirky movie, a super weird movie, a super fun movie, a super like... Um, 
depending on how you're looking at like certain things, Evan Rachel Wood, I guess, but like Gina Rodriguez specifically, like a, like a sexy movie um, about attachment, like parental child attachment, is super fucking fascinating to me. The idea that like, and everything here is so subtle. She doesn't say anything to the point where you're just kind of left to experience these moments and some of it is goofy and some of it really works and some of it doesn't work. Um, but I love, I think every year I have a movie on my list that I just like fucking love. Like I just have like so much affection for it's just, it just makes me so happy that this movie got made that these people were in it and that the movie is so fucking good. It's so complicated and it's so subtle but it just works on all these different levels. And I just like Miranda July doesn't make enough movies as far as I'm concerned. I think Kajillionaire is proof of that. I think the fact that she got all these people to work on this movie is proof of that. Um, it's just, it's, we're not going to have a Kajillionaire in 2021 because we're not lucky enough to have movies like this in like consecutive years. I think there's going to be a bunch of people that try to make this movie. I think Wes Anderson is going to, just like always, try to make a movie as good as Kajillionaire in the exact same way, and he's just not going to do it. Um, Are you saying Sam Levinson hasn't done it with Malcolm Marie? I'm going to assume that Sam Levinson didn't do it with Malcolm <laughs> and Marie. Yeah, no, Um, I like this movie a lot. Uh, given time with it, I still don't necessarily feel close to it. Um, well, I think it's not. To be fair, and I'm not going to mention my number one right now. It, it and my number one I mean, are kind of like the same movie. I mean, yeah. Well, is that what I'm supposed um, to do? Is my, am I supposed to do my number one? No, no, you don't have to do your number one. I just have to quickly. My number two is your number one. Right. So, so actually, I'll say my number one. No, 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 don't no. Say you yet. say number two. Okay. I think these movies are in, in a lot of ways work in tandem together. My number two, and my number one work in tandem for me. That's fun. One of them is very is like the sunnier side of it, and one of them is the much darker side. That's of it. that's also the same thing for exactly. me. That's fun. So, um, I think it's it's you get pulled in a couple of different directions. I think this. I love the fact that this movie is so sunny. I love the fact that this movie is so, uh, like what's a, what's it say about us? The fact that like we took both of these things out. Like we took a sunny side and a dark side. Our dark side's the same. <laughs> but I don't but I think it's it's just how we approach them. Mm. Because I love your number two and my number one on mostly aesthetic reasons. I don't perceive anything of myself in either of them. Oh well. I mean this is like the first year really that I I don't Lover's Rock is the one movie that I perceive anything of myself, and it has nothing to do with the movie at all. It's just the experience of experiencing something that happens so you, in the movie. So you don't have like a, a a closeness to Kajillionaire. It's just like an aesthetic sort of feeling. Sure, I mean, I just I I mean, and as we go forward, I think in our pivotal film list, I think that'll be clear. I'm I'm I want a movie that's going to take take aesthetic chances, but that. Uh, or I respond to a movie that takes aesthetic chances, but I have a very specific aesthetic in mind. Mm. You know what I mean? A kind of messy, surrealist experience is really kind of where my head is at in, in a lot of ways. But I also want, I also respond to stuff that has like a positivity to it, especially like my first, my, my top two. Um, they're, they're super fucking dark, but you can 
extract the positive. I think they end in a roughly a, a positive place. I, I mean, I've, I, I, yeah, we won't go there now. No, um, but I think Cajillionaire is kind of Cajillionaire doesn't go as far as either of those movies for sure, but it definitely takes you someplace dark. But also uh, has a has a. It's a, ultimately a, a positive light. It's to ultimately it. yeah, a comedy because it ends and on a an feel good note. comedy and a comedy that has a lot of. Well, um, I mean, like a dramatic comedy in the sense that it starts high, ends lower, and ends on an upswing, sort of. Well, it ends with Gina Rodriguez and Evan Rachel Wood like kissing each other in a Target. Well, well, that woman's just like really working on that computer. Yeah. <laughs> After she's done a return, and you. You know, for a very specific amount of money that has a very specific... Uh, what was it? $525. $525, yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, and I appreciate it. I, I, I really think Miranda July... And that's my thing about Miranda July. She always has, like, a, such a strong control and an aesthetic. But at the same time, like, I just never... And such, especially, it's weird, because, like, she's such a West Coast director. Oh, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't feel it. I never feel it. Like, hmm. I get it. I see it. But I, it's like the West Coast I'd never got sort of thing mm. um and that's the same thing with this i i like it i appreciate it but it's always kind of like the scummy undertone of the west that i was always like a, a slightly distant from mm. what i wasn't distant from was my number two um i guess i guess i go into my feelings on my number two now and then we kind of talk about the aesthetic of it when we talk about your number well, one no, when we I'll, talk about from your number actually, one actually i mean we've already established this your number two is my number one yeah we're gonna end on your number one Let's just do this now. Is that you want to do that? Way? Okay. Fine with me. So my number two, your number one is um, I'm thinking of ending things by Charlie Kaufman. Um, you you have more of an aesthetic feeling about it, and I guess it kind of ties like personal feelings are more tied into my two and one. So I don't know if you. Well, want I mean, to I just I think you just said the word you said the name of this movie, and I like smiled because I just. I just love this movie. I think it works on a lot of the same levels. Aren't you happy after your like most anticipated of last year? You're just like so. I'm racking them up. You're so cautious from last I year about so. like, oh, this might not be good. Well, because Anomalisa wasn't that good. Yeah, and I really wanted. I obviously I was primed to love Anomalisa. I was destined to love Anomalisa, and after it happened, I was like, I feel like Charlie Kaufman's done this better. Like. 150 times. And you were yeah. worried about him doing, like, not his own work and well, everything. Just, just and just, like, Netflix a... money. The first person to ever take Netflix money and be like, fuck you. Yeah, it seemed like such do a thing, Charlie that, wasn't, thing. That wasn't, it wasn't designed to work. It was designed to actually probably be bad. Because everyone else that took Netflix money, except, I guess, for Alfonso Cuaron, who it was just made a movie that I didn't respond to. Um, yeah. Made a movie and just kind of... Movie, but... I mean, I guess Spike Lee, you know... But Spike Lee indulged himself a lot, too. Spike Lee indulging himself, though, is uh, like a kick-ass thing. Charlie Kaufman indulging himself doesn't necessarily have to be kick-ass. You know what I mean? And especially the fact that he indulged himself by adapting a very slim novel of, um, you know, meager critical acclaim and whatever, you know, just didn't say great things to me. That seemed like I literally just want to take, I want a job. Yeah. I don't want to just keep writing. I don't want. I'm sick of being asked to write being John Malkovich over and over and over again. I want to do my own thing, but if all I can do is this, fuck it. I'll do it. But he made him. I mean, he made a, a, a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. It's subtle, it's dark, uh, but it's also really complicated in the best possible ways. He, I mean, 
it's one of those movies that we didn't really talk about this when we talked about adapted screenplay because we were kind of just like burning through those categories and stuff. But like what he did with the book is fascinating. You, thing, you read the book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The stuff he did with that is is just, you know, he turned it, oh, it's George Wolfian in a lot of ways, that he turned this book, this very small book, into this huge thing that has musical numbers and ballet things, but they all seem to be of a piece because I think he establishes, because he's a genius, he establishes the interiority of this thing while trying to still convey the idea that Jesse Buckley is her own character and Jesse Plemons is, she does not exist in the head of Jesse Plemons and that David Thewlis and Tony Collette are playing their themselves while also being manifestations of, of everything that Jesse Plemons has ever felt about his parents. Jesse Plemons' characters have ever felt about his parents. Jake's well, parents. If, if I can feed into that yeah, point yeah, really quickly without you know jumping into like my personal feelings about it, is Ian Reed is telling you what like um I need to have it popped up um is it Jake Jake yeah Jake's character is telling you what he's he's thinking of himself not Kaufman, even super cleverly yeah no he's just no and I, I don't think there's an intent I think it's just like right in front of you yeah. and the only thing Ian Reed does intelligently is like you know men writing women sort of thing of the fact that it's like a really two dimensional woman that he writes throughout this. And then when you get to the end, you realize the reason why. Mm-hmm. I think that's clever for me and Reed. And I think it's an okay book. That's a pretty good book. Um, what I think's solid about this, though, is the fact that, like, Kaufman taps into those insecurities that would be present in something like Jake with just his just plethora of knowledge of pop culture and peppers it through. Oh, that's great. And and just constantly drills that thematic point home. Well, all of those things seem perfectly owned. An obscure poet that nobody knows except for... Charlie Kaufman, because he's, it, she's a friend of his. Uh, a Pauline Kael review of a John Cassavetes film that has essentially been forgotten so at time. What the hell was that poem? That book of poetry, I read some of it. Was Bone great. Dog. Bone Dog, yeah. Um, uh, 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 Pauline Kael... I really want to... What? I just want to name that, that poetry, uh, the, the poem. The Eva... Uh, Eva H.D. HD. Yeah. That um, entire, like... But, like, her stuff is great. Just, just a namer. Um, a Kale review. A Pauline Kale, who is a, a a film critic who is now, in ten years, will be forgotten to society because she doesn't matter anymore. She'll be remembered. No, she'll be remembered for like own social stigma only. For, right, but like from as a film critic per, oh, perspective, absolutely. like she is finished. As soon as Armand White and Owen Gleiberman die. Which won't be in ten years, twenty years, whatever. I don't think Owen Gleiberman gives a shit about Pauline Kael. But he was he was a Paulette for a long time. Yeah, but but I'm just saying, like all those guys, as soon as like Pauline Kael, like the idea becomes forgotten, Pauline Kael is finished. But, She'll become a uh, like a Bowder Crowsley or what? Oh, I can't. Um, yeah, I'm talking about. Keep talking. Okay, but I, I also think the same thing is true about like John Cassavetes, where no one's really talking about John Cassavetes anymore. So he includes this Pauline Kael review of a John Cassavetes movie that nobody really thinks about anymore, and he aligns it to a Ron Howard movie that won a ton of fucking Oscars that also nobody kind of thinks about anymore. And he a and he aligns that to none of this shit is in the book. He aligns that to. Oklahoma, which is like a classic 
you know, all-time musical, which I, maybe I shouldn't even be shocked about this. I tried to show my daughter, like, the Hugh Jackman filmed version of Oklahoma, which is apparently, like, the definitive version of the musical. Bosley Crowther, who I was trying to mention. Oh, why does that name sound familiar? Bosley Crowther is, like, the Pauline Kale of the 30s and oh, okay, 40s, okay. 50s. Um, but Oklahoma doesn't, isn't going to matter anymore. You know what I mean? Like, all these things that are kind of forgotten by, like, modern society that are kind of being for Or that are actively... Oh, that's such a fucking... And that's where... The genius of this movie is that, like, the more you think about it, the more it reveals itself as a whole of itself. Where I think a lot of people, like, seem to take this movie as just being, like, overly complicated on purpose for the sake of being complicated. But I think it isn't. It's all about the idea that, like... Your past is going to be your past at some point, and your present is going to be all that's left, and that fucking terrifies this character, Jake. So he keeps developing, you know, we have to, I, I from the Ian Reed novel, it makes it seem like he's had a lot of different girlfriends, and, you know, this is the one that's lasted, like, by a certain, you know, for a certain amount of time, blah, 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 blah. Maybe they don't all get to the parents' house. Doesn't matter. Um... It's the present is that the present is what is terrifying to Jake, to the janitor. You know what I mean? So he lives in this in this like psychological, psychologically created world um, where he still really matters and he can get a girl like um, Jesse Buckley's character and she's really interesting and he's really interesting and everyone's really interesting. Um, But in reality, it's just. Life, you can't avoid life catching up with you, and life in this context is the is an is a pig, voiced by Oliver Platt, walking you, you know, from your truck back into the school to get your clothes. Um, I don't know. It's 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 there's, I think Kajillionaire and Lovers Rock are interesting comparisons, and in the fact I think, in the sense that I think, all three of these movies, there's nothing like them. Um. They're all wholly unique experiences in and of themselves, and they reference almost nothing other than their filmmakers' previous work. Um, but even that, they push it a step further. I think, um, in a ways, they push their they push their art in ways that I don't think they've they've been forced to before. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I'm thinking of ending things shows up on my list for an entirely different reason. Um, uniquely tied to my number one. Um, I, like I said, this year had had three films that really kind of defined, not this year, this, this past 12 months, mm. um, had three films that kind of really defined myself in a weird way. Um, my anxieties and my... Uh, proclivities and my fears and and hopes and whatnot. Um, and my number two and one are uniquely tied in that way. Uh, so my number two is is I'm thinking of ending things, um, and it goes back into like that like into that overthinking of things, into that 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 it's so you know this I think at kind so uniquely tie into each other in. in the fact of how in tune overthinking can be, mm-hmm. um, how how much you can can look at something and just become so in tune with it. I, I look at I, I remember watching the part where he ties himself into like John Nash's speech, mm. like from the Beautiful Mind, mm-hmm. 
I remember when I first saw that scene, I was like, well, what's what's the Charlie Kaufman thing here? Mm-hmm. You know, like Oklahoma's tied in the fact of uh, there, there's more of a film reason for it of like being attached to Jed has kind of the villain. Jed, I think it's the character's name, being attached to the villain of that and whatnot. And like this. And you have a villain of your own piece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, like this and Ant Kind are so close in the fact that they're so intensely filled with stuff like Ant Kind. There's so much like Armand White in that because mm, you can is. see it's kind of like digging into Charlie Kaufman. And like when I saw the John Nash thing, all I could think about was the fact that like he did Human Nature. Mm. Like was the second movie he wrote that year. Um, and then like Beautiful Mind kind of explodes and Human Nature is like forgotten. Like Human, Human I loved Human Nature. But it's like a nothing film. Yeah. Like in terms of like being in the spotlight of anything. And then afterwards, you know, Charlie Kaufman kind of explodes onto the scene. Adaptation gets adaptation gets nominated. Mm-hmm. He doesn't win for it, but then, you know, he wins for Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. And I just watched that and like I'm like, why is he include the beautiful mind thing here? And it's like and I, I have a gut feeling because it's like it dug into him. Mm. You know, the fact I'm that sure like, he probably saw this movie and he's like, This isn't good. Well the fact that everyone just, said some aspects of it were bad. Like that that scene is 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 I and remember makeup, when that movie the, came the, out. The makeup in that scene is, is purposely bad. No, well the makeup no, no, but I'm saying in, in the beautiful, beautiful mind. mind. And then to the tenth degree, and I'm thinking of ending this because right. it's 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 this person like I feel like it's Charlie Kaufman kind of exposing himself on the screen with this movie. Just rub my foot. Did I? <laughs> you did? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, We're both getting casual and extending <laughs> our legs out. Uh, he's being so raw in this, and the fact that like there is no reason for that to exist. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else has this like earned degree to it, but like a character like Jake probably wouldn't give a fuck about a beautiful mind. And so, like when the beautiful mind kind of like pops up, I'm like, I remember sitting there going, like, what's it doing here? And, you know, why is a Pauline Kale kind of re- review doing here? Like, Jake might have some Pauline Kale stuff, but, like, those two moments really stand out to me to be, like, Charlie Kaufman things. Mm-hmm. And then this kind of, like, rawness in how people see him comes to the forefront. Uh, you know, and, and, and mentioning that, like, you know, what's your boyfriend look like stuff. Like, I, I watch this movie going, like, oh, right. Like, before a person can have the answer about how they feel about you, you've already made the answer for them. Mm. And it's it's never like a good answer. Yep. Um, and I'm thinking of ending. I just watch this going like, yeah, that that's exactly how I feel about mm. myself a lot of times. Mm. And the fact that like I know I'm not like a weirdo and whatnot. I know I'm not, but I, you are perfectly encapsulating like everything you feel about yourself all at once. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's nice, though, in the fact that it has, like, the self-awareness to be, like, this isn't necessarily the case. And what I like about this movie, in, in comparison to, like, Ian Reed's book, um, is the fact that there's, like, the, still that little tinge of help after, like, the, the sure. post-credits of where you hear the car start up again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he's not presented as, like, this really... Jake's not presented as a sad character, whereas in the book he's kind of presented as this weird character. Well, he's presented as ruined in the book, so much yeah. so that he's going to kill himself. Whereas in this, it's just presented as just, like, an unfortunate series of events. Well, it's just, you feel like it's a guy that's struggling. Yeah. And you feel he's struggling for, like, earnest, like, good, you feel like he, the book makes it sound like he's a creep. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie yep. makes it sound like he thinks he's a creep. Like, when Jesse Buckley's saying, like, oh, it's just another creepy guy, you never get the sense that that woman in that night, like, mm-hmm. even though Jake's character's thinking about years later, that woman didn't have a second thought about Jake. Mm-hmm. She was just a guy who she probably, like, saw, like, oh, that guy that might be checking me out. Yep. And then looked back, and that guy was not looking at her anymore, and she's like, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and then forgot about it that night. Yeah. But... For somebody like him, like, he was like, I was a fucking creep. I was weird. Oh, no, this is the constant thing I'm always doing. And, like, he, Charlie Kaufman taps into that. Mm-hmm. Taps into the fact that, like, it's not a weirdo. It's not a creep. It's just a guy who just, like, feels bad about himself. Mm-hmm. Feels as though – and feels like this weird fear of of being bad, of rejecting himself before, you know, like – yeah. Not before others could reject him, but rejecting himself before he could hurt anybody else. And that's the thing that's great about this movie is like the sense of it has this sense of like self defeatism and the sense of fear of hurting others, which is great. Well, I don't even know if it's a sense of hurting. I think there's some of that hurting others in there too. But the the idea that like certain things exclude you from being loved. Yeah. So the fact that he took care of his parents, I guess, until they died. The idea that he painted. The idea that he spent too much time thinking about film and knew too much about musicals precluded him from being loved. And now he's kind of... By his own volition. Right, right. But he just... He he perceived them as excluding him, regardless of whether anyone else, like, felt that way or not. No. He looked at Jesse... You know, to think of it narratively, he looked at Jesse Buckley in that bar. She looked at him... Probably in his mind, everything that happened in this movie came back to him. And he was just like, I'm out. And then he internalized that self-rejection and creates these narratives for himself that see, I lead don't him see nowhere. That, I don't see it that way. I see it almost as like... Uh, the, 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 the character... I, I see that as in... In the book, I see it that way. In the film, I see it as... I am going to cause this other person harm because I think the film presents it in such a way where Jake is always afraid of like hurting others. But I don't think it's necess- and then denies himself yeah. that. But I don't think it's necessarily removed from the idea of self-rejection. So mm. you have to come up with a. Reason. He's still re- he's still rejecting himself. You have to come up with a reason to. But it's an externalized rejection. But I think it's one of those things where, like, you can look at... So I'm not worthy of being loved because I like X, Y, and Z, but because I like X, Y, and Z things, too, I'm... If I was allowed to love this person, I would ruin them because of these things. Because they play a false. Yeah, so there's, like, a ton of... It's it's amazingly complex. And I think the beauty of this movie is that, you know, Charlie Kaufman does a lot of that stuff visually. Yeah, absolutely. He's not like saying, "Listen, I'm now like in the Ian Reed novel, like he killed himself and he left a you know spoiler alert for the novel. He killed himself and he left a note explaining everything why he was doing yeah. this or it's whatever." It sounds like we're shitting on a novel. It's just like we're not. It's I think it's a good novel. It's a pretty good book, yeah. But it's just compared to this, right? Um, all right. So and that stands it in the face of my number one. Um, which is like the one single. I, like, I don't know how much you want to go into. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to go super into it, but like the one line that spoke to me in my number one was like the "I wasted time," um, and it it fits so perfectly well with with I'm thinking of ending things and the fact of like vulnerability is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my number one's "Portrait of a, of a Lady on Fire," of course. Um, 
I don't have to go into it too much. We'll talk about it. I was going to say, you know, we'll get <laughs> you there. Probably, I think people are at this point where they might know that. Um, but I'm going to talk about purely from a clinical standpoint. We'll, we'll talk about like the kind of the emotional aspect of it later. Uh, but from a purely sort of film standpoint, I was awestruck by the blues mm-hmm. of the ocean, um, by the minimalism of music and the fact that when music came in, it mattered, mm-hmm. by the um, control of its two lead performances. Um, it is a extremely carefully crafted film. Uh, it is a film that is so silently loud that is is always amazing to me mm-hmm. um it's a film that it, it never screams at you but it's deafening to me yeah, this, this all sounds weird it's because i'm trying to say it in ways that i, I won't be redundant later no, um, but i think they work in terms of the the two movies too is that they're do, uh celine siama is doing everything visually yeah there there's a lot of not spoken shit happening here that happens with glances and with mask pulling down cinematography. That I still, I still love the fact that the mask pulling down played such a key role in a f- scene I loved when I first saw it, and then that actually ended up playing like a really pivotal role of masks in the year. Mm. I don't know. It just it's it's a beautiful accident that I, I stumbled upon this movie when I did. But even were it not given the year. Um, Maybe I don't respond as intimately to this film as I end up doing, but I still don't see this movie. This movie was my number one film of the year when I saw it in February, mm-hmm. and it was going to be hard to defeat before everything shut down. We didn't talk about this movie until mid-March, but I'd seen it. You know, I was already saying it's one of my favorite movies of all time before I knew we were going to enter lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um just because I believe it's so beautifully intimate and, and, and such a, a personal feature, but such a personal feature that is still so utterly theatrical. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't have, I got nothing to add to that. Um, I agree with everything. There's, um, there's a, a tightness here that kind of pushes it down a little bit for me where I, I wish it But would. But at the same time, like this is a movie that didn't even on your top 10 that when you revisited it, Came up, well, right? just it's one of those things where it's, it's, um, it's undeniable in a lot of ways, and you can try to deny it as much as you want. But I guess unless you are really anti, I don't know, Island. same-sex romances or hot shots or hot shots, part one or part two. Um, there's not a lot to to say in criticism of it. I think it's. I personally find it too controlled, where I think Kajillionaire and Lovers Rock and I'm thinking of anything as they're controlled, but they seem um, out of, they seem beyond the bounds of cinema in a lot of ways. Really, um, I, I agree. I agree very, with I agree with Kajillionaire and Lovers Rock, but I think I'm thinking of anything as super controlled. Oh, it's very controlled, but he's. I mean. You can't compare Charlie Kaufman as a filmmaker to Celine Siyama as a filmmaker. No, that's fair. There are things that she does in this movie that she doesn't have to do. And yeah, I think no, she feels like she must do them because she doesn't realize that she doesn't have to do it. And I think that that is also true of some of the, the imagery and the symbolism in this movie is that she's... Conce- the entire subplot. <laughs> she's conceived of some symbolism, but she doesn't 
necessarily... I don't get a sense on the screen that she knows what that symbolism is. That's fair. So there's a lot of well-composed shots that mean absolutely nothing. I thought you were saying. I thought you were saying Charlie Kaufman is loose with I'm thinking of ending. Oh no, no, no. Like, there's no there's, looseness, yeah. but he also knows that he he knows exactly what he he's knows doing how this week. works. Yeah. And I think Celine Siama, because this is only her fourth feature, it means Charlie Kaufman's second directorial or third directorial feature, but he's been doing it forever. It's, you know, Celine Sion's... And you know he's co-directing those movies with Michael Gondry and... Sure, sure, sure. Spike Jones. There's, there's just elements... There's elements at play here that I think if this was her, like, eighth feature, she just blows... She just blows apart. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Where it's just... it's, in, Which is not to say that the ending doesn't work in the same way that it, it, it works. I'm not talking about the ending. I'm talking about, like, some of, like, the little things in the in the middle of it that would have... Made the ending literally an unbearable experience, well, which th- makes think, it just, which takes it down like one level. I think I think she has the same sort of like, um, not insecurities, but kind of like still, not looseness, but kind of like this delicacy that Lucha did um, until like he goes full throttle with Suspiria. Over oh, Call and, Me By Your Name? Yeah. Uh, like, there's still, like, those moments in Call Me By Your Name where he's kind of... And I always just say Lucha because I can never say his fucking last name. Guadagnino. There you go. Um, there's still, like... Because, like, that movie has those moments that like, feel like they need to be there. Well, so maybe this is, like, a, a gender thing. I don't know. The idea that, like, Timothy Chalamet's character is just going to walk up to... Uh, they're gonna him and Army Hammer the cannibal are gonna have like a a a, 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 a moment like in a doorway. Man-eater. Army man eater. <laughs> they're gonna have a moment in a doorway, and then uh, Timothy Chalamet is gonna go down on him. And they're yeah. not gonna talk about it. They're not gonna. There's not gonna be a pulling down a mask scene. Yeah, but a I, moment also, I also where feel, he's just gonna be like. I also feel do like the scene where they're kind of like in the grass is feels like it's like oh i have to do this to like really earn the room a little bit but there's also uh, the there's there's an element there where the moment they get together and they're very together from the beginning of the movie luca guadagnino is establishing that there's an attraction here where as in portrait of lady on fire there isn't that kind of so there's there's a teasing element to like a lot of the a lot of the um there's a teasing element to a lot of the sexuality early in, in Call Me By Your Name. Whereas in this movie, I don't get the sense that, like, pulling down the mask is, do you want me to pull down the mask? I get the, I get the sense that pulling down the mask is, is, is a modern cultural, yeah. is, a, is, a, is, a, is a nod to a modern cultural uh, idea than it is, has anything to do with what's happening in well, the movie. I actually think, and I, I won't cover this one, we review it, um, talk about later, is is I think that my one failing with Portrait of a Lady on Fire is is Celine Sienema has doesn't have a tight control on how much, like, she wants to consume Adele and all of that. Like, like a, it's kind of just a given that, like, Adele and all is, like, this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a lot of like person. Like, I want to my gut feel. My gut reading of it comes in like personal feelings of it. Um, but it just feels like it's just like no, it's a given. Like this woman's like perfect sort of thing. Right. Well, my other thing too is there's and so we talked about this a little bit. Like when um, 
uh, Noemi Merlon gets to the, I don't know, forget her name, Marianne gets Marianne. to the island. Um, and she's, you know, her clothes are wet. And she's later that night sitting in front of the fire. And there's a deep shadow over her naked body while she's kind of just sitting in front of the fire. I don't think there's any reason if she's as as if we're establishing her as like as as the free person here who has uh, has an understanding of her sexuality has an understanding of who she is as a person and what she I don't wants. Think she does have an understanding. She has to because she goes into this saying, "I'm I'm dedicated myself to spinsterhood and painting," so she has to know the ramifications of all of her choices. I still disagree on that one. But it's but it's 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 backed up by the literature of the time, no. where you're not. If you are a painter, for if you are if you are dedicating your life to painting, you are not getting married. You are not a person who matters. You're also making yourself a person who will probably never matter artistically. And if you do get married at some point, it's going to be later in life, and it's going to be for convenience so you can eat. Like that's just what happens. To those women who decide, I mean, so there's a there's a uh, there's a lot of stuff about this year about uh, Artemisia Gentileschi. Have you ever heard of her? She's this female. Uh, she's a, a a lot like Marianne, who is a, a female artist who, um, you know, had a lot of. Uh, she was raped. She was you know had a lot of horrible sexual experiences with men, and she depicted a lot of this stuff later she, in her she, art. She's modern, or no, no, no. She's very like of the same period where she was just kind of relegated to this life and was passed over by most art at a certain point uh, or by art history because she was a woman. And so her experience like didn't matter at all. So to dedicate yourself to art at that time was to say, I'm committing myself to X life. Yeah. So she would have had to have made certain life choices that would have made her more prone to saying, I don't fucking give a shit. I'm willing to put my mouth all over this woman because I'm already doomed socially. So she had to, she has to have been, when she gets to that island, she's already committed herself to a certain amount of, she's committed herself to a certain societal level. There's no reason to cloak her in darkness. Let's see her naked. You're going to see her naked later. What is the darkness about? And that's what I'm saying. It's a well-composed shot. It's beautiful, but its symbolism and it's is is flawed. And I think that's where if Celine Siam is making this movie three movies from now, says fuck it. I know what this woman is about, and I'm going to show you what this woman is about. I'm not going to try to cinematography this thing to death. Yeah. Which I think is one of the th- one of where I'm I butt it up to it a little bit where I think she's kind of it's too cinema oriented, yeah. Which is beautiful, but is a, a little emotionally deadening where it should be emotionally free. Whereas I, I very much go in with the intent and and am there with it, but forgive that kind of misgivings. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it more in depth. We'll get there. Yeah. When we talk about my number negative twenty eight, we go yeah we worst go, movie ever made. We go no, it's not like I'm gonna talk about Demolition Man first. And then we're gonna we're gonna do we're a deep about Demolition dive Man. in. We're gonna talk about it again. We're gonna talk about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Then we're gonna talk about a little uh, ten thousand BC that that Rachel oh Kel yeah. Welch movie. We're gonna talk about Passenger Fifty Seven for me. Oh, we when we, 
We're going to do a deep dive into the Julian Sands Warlock movies. That'll be great. Ooh, yeah. And do you know what's weird? There's no Highlander movies on our lists. Were you not a Highlander guy? I liked Highlander a lot. I was more a Highlander series, though. Mm. We're making Cube the movie, by the way. What is Cube? Never mind. (laughs) Like the Q? Cubert? Cubert. Cubert the movie? He just says fuck a lot but it's all tied up if you want to say fuck a lot you can do so at our twitter at film pivotal or you can go to pivotalfilm.com or you go email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see i don't even know what's happening there i haven't been there in a while uh you can see something marjorie taylor green's taking it over Uh, lauren bobert's just Posting the problem clips. with Marjorie Taylor Greene is that I don't even think she wants it. I think she wants to be as anonymous as humanly possible and just like win this Georgia congressional seat like over and over and over again. But, but she keeps talking. Kevin McCarthy keeps like ruining her fucking life and being like, nope. Well, she so, could be on all the committees. She's like, come on, man. I don't want to be on a fucking committee. Not tomorrow. Not after tomorrow. This is going to be bad. <laughs> um, yeah. So we will get there uh, to our next list whenever that is. I don't know. A couple weeks. Somebody. I'm excited. Whenever that is, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're on the ro- we're on the march on the march to the end of life, civilization. Basically, well, depending on what happens with this majority Taylor Green thing, <laughs> that could be right, Mario. Who knows? All right, but uh, yeah. So watch. Don't watch the news. Watch movies. Uh, and also, don't watch little things. We'll talk about that later. Don't watch little things if you can avoid it. Don't watch little things, even if you think you might like it. Just watch like WandaVision. You won't. Just watch True Detective Season 1 again. If you really have to do this. Or even Season 2. Or even Season 2. Colin Farrell beats a guy's, a kid's dad up in front of the kids. And that kid likes it. That's good. That kid probably likes it. That's good television. Yeah. Little things. Not good. Though. Isn't it? Alright, we'll talk to you later.